This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Tuesday, April 26, 2016. I'm Caleb Brown. Sluggish economic growth means relatively fewer jobs, but what are some of the government-sponsored impediments to jump-starting growth and entrepreneurial activity? Ed Glazer is an economist at Harvard University. We talked about entrepreneurship, regulation, and immigration last month. In this election season, there's a big focus on jobs, uh, as there always is, but it's a little more pronounced this time around. Uh, Brink Lindsay has done a lot of work here at Cato. Uh, you've participated in, in some of that related to uh, getting growth back on track or uh, accepting the low growth that uh, we may have uh, going forward. But what are some of the things that governments do that uh, hamper entrepreneurship broadly speaking. You know, when I, when I think about the largest unsolved problems facing America, uh, I think of the fact that when I was born almost 50 years ago, one in 20 prime-aged males aged 25 to 55 were jobless. Today that number is over 15 percent, an astonishing number. And that's been a roughly 50-year secular trend. It always goes up a lot during uh, major crises and then it comes back somewhat. But it's a tripling of the number over the long haul. And in some sense, every underemployed American is a failure of entrepreneurial imagination. And when we think about what's going on in the American economy, there's no sense in which we can possibly argue that America has ceased to be an economically dynamic place. Amazing things are happening all the time in, in the U.S. But what is really shocking is how little of that entrepreneurial vision has translated into employment for ordinary uh, Americans. And we really have to ask ourselves, where are the entrepreneurs who are going to hire less skilled Americans? What's, what's going on here? Um, and there are many ways that one can take this. I think in many cases, the strategies that are being taken for the less skilled are counterproductive. So for example, $15 minimum wages in places like Los Angeles feel like they're just telling everyone who would employ a less skilled worker to go go work somewhere else, go find opportunities somewhere else, don't come here. Here we attack people who provide jobs for the less skilled um, when you know, clearly we should be celebrating them. And, and on top of that, it's just unjust to think that we want the people who provide jobs for the less skilled or even more so the customers of those people to pay the cost of whatever we want to do to promote employment among, among the less skilled. We need to have a national agenda that is about empowering and unleashing America's entrepreneurs and making sure they work best at providing jobs for those people who start with less. Entrepreneurs are, of course, you know, hailed by uh, libertarians and uh, I think economists more broadly as being the people who identify something that wasn't uh, identified before. Their knowledge of time and place uh, leads them to uh, make profits where they otherwise would just lie there. So. What are the what are some concrete steps to move in that direction to, uh, if not actively move people in the direction of trying to create something entirely new, but at least get out of the way? Well, we need to think, first of all, about the regulatory framework. I mean, I often tell cities that the best economic development strategy is to attract and train smart people and then get out of their way. And there's plenty of evidence supporting the view that entrepreneurship is a crucial ingredient in any city's success and comeback. You know, 50 years ago, the economist Ben Chinitz was comparing New York and Pittsburgh and noting that New York appeared to be more resilient than Pittsburgh did even in the mid-1950s. He argued that this was the, res the residue of New York's industrial orientation towards the garment sector, 
which was a mother of entrepreneurship, a place where anyone with a couple of sewing machines and a good idea could get started. And those entrepreneurs went on to do other things. They went on to form movie studios. They went on to build skyscrapers. They went on to make New York dynamic and resilient. By contrast, Pittsburgh had U.S. Steel, which while a great company in the short run, fundamentally it trained company men, not entrepreneurs. And those company men were less good at figuring out what could be done uh, when big steel faltered. Now, that the power of industrial history doesn't mean that the state should be engaged in micromanaging industries by any stretch of the imagination. I think most of the time when states get involved in this, they go in exactly the wrong direction. They go towards attracting large smokestacks. They go towards supporting big, concrete, visible employers rather than laying the groundwork for a, a fertile uh, ecosystem of, of startups. Um, but what can they do? So I, I think it fundamentally comes down to rules and skills. And the rules part is the part where we really do know what's going on. We need to roll back things that are going on with occupational licensing that are just you know, completely unnecessary. I mean, the set of, set of rules we have that are ever-expanding that limit personal services is, is really you know, absolutely absurd. It's really nothing more than barriers to competition by the existing uh, incumbents. And especially for people who are of lower skill. Absolutely, right? And when you think about where the jobs for less skilled Americans are likely to come from, they're likely to come from services. They're not likely to come from some resurgence of cheap labor-intensive manufacturing, which is not to say that America won't continue to have a vibrant manufacturing sector, but it would tend to be very capital and technology intensive, not competing on low-cost labor with the developing world. But services, absolutely. And you know, we need more people who are starting up cafes. We need more people who are working in uh, working as barbers. We need more people who are working in hair salons, who are uh, selling whatever their imagination dreams up. And we need to make sure that we're not putting up barriers to, to them, them. So one thing is about the rules, per se. So it's about not having occupational licensing that's too extreme. The other thing is how the r- rules are operated. So one of the things that's really scary, and actually the New York uh, Economic Development Corporation, I think, put together this wonderful chart which helps you navigate through the licensing process in New York. And on one level, this is great. So anyone who wants to start a business can go follow this thing. On the other hand, it shows you that you need, you know, roughly speaking, 17 steps in this to get to get through, which is, of course, just dizzying if you're coming, particularly if you're coming from a from a less well-educated background or background where your English is, is imperfect. Um, one model for improving this is one-stop permitting. And we've seen this in the Devons Enterprise uh, Commission, which was formed after Fort Devens in Massachusetts was converted into Devens. And the sort of economic development sauce that was thrown in was the idea, why not have a a more direct way of permitting in Devon? So anyone could come, there's one office. And the great thing about having one office for doing permitting is that you can actually keep track of how quickly that permitting process is working. If you've got 17 different agencies who are responsible for each a little bit of different part of the permitting, who knows where the holdup is? in getting the permit across? Who can tell which one of these 17 groups is the, is the failure in the O-ring of getting the, getting the startup open? But if there's one enterprise that's in charge of it, then you know how long it's taking this person to issue permits and what the turndown rate is. So you can actually judge them and hold them accountable. So that's one part of it, which is really about rules. And in the case of Boston, I've been advocating for having an enterprise district and an entrepreneurship district in a higher poverty area of Boston. Now, if you told me I could get one-stop permitting for all of Massachusetts, I would embrace it you know, immediately. But I think in some cases, we need to start smaller and just make the case that these systems can really work. And really remembering that this is a social justice issue, that in fact, it is absolutely a 
abysmal in this country that we regulate poor person entrepreneurship so much more tightly than we regulate rich person entrepreneurship. It is, it is just so much easier to start an internet uh, giant in the streets outside of MIT than it is to start up a, a small grocery store that sells milk products in Dudley Square. Do you have a sense of why that is? Is it uh, you know political entrepreneurship to, to say this, this is a group worth protecting because they'll be general, generating a lot of revenue? Or is it even that, uh, that well thought out? <laughs> uh, you know, I, I, I think most of the time it's accidents and accretion of history more than it is a specific conspiracy of incumbents. But, you know, placating incumbents is also important. I, I think there's a good argument that some of, let's say, the regulatory antipathy towards food trucks in Detroit came from the political pressure put on by existing restaurateurs. I'll just give an example on this because it's one of my favorite ones, that, that, that freeing the food truck is one of my personal pet causes. That, you know, I, when I was a young impecunious assistant professor, I, I ate in a Chinese food truck out back. And now, now wonderfully, we have more food trucks in, in, uh, in Litauer, and I, I can go to a, a Vietnamese food truck that, that's outside uh, daily. And so this is a pet cause. These are great things. They work well with cities. They're sort of places that entrepreneurs can get started that don't require huge amounts of, of investment. And yet they're so highly regulated in some areas. And there was this wonderful, you know, cause celebra of this woman. I think the name of her food truck was the Pink Flamingo with the last go uh, capitalized. And she had tried for 18 months to start her food truck in Detroit. Now, the idea that Detroit should be saying no to any entrepreneur is just such obvious madness that you sort of feel like it's, it's, uh, it's just absurd. But um, I was on a, an NPR show to, with, with this woman, with the ombudsman of the city of Detroit. And uh, we went for an hour. And, you know, the ombudsman took slug after slug. You know, no, there's no d reasonable defense for why you want to make this woman's life hell. And he finally says at the end of the hour something like, you know, please, lady, just go ahead and start your food truck. We'll never catch you, uh, which I think is the, uh, <laughs> you know, is the final denouement of what happens with this stuff. It's just a complete, you have so many rules, you're not even willing to enforce them. Well, which itself poses a problem, just the idea that you could uh, selectively enforce rules depending on uh, what your interest, what pol your political interests uh, absolutely. are at the time. Now, you, you talked about uh, food trucks specifically, and of course, in Washington, D.C., food trucks are very popular and they're wonderful. But that is just one of the ways in which uh, an entrepreneur can effectively lower the cost of entry into the business world. That is, you don't need a brick-and-mortar store. You don't need to sign a lease. You don't need to you're, – you're probably going to be the one cleaning the truck in the morning and in the evening and preparing all the food and stuff. But there are other costs of entry for starting a business, what does government do to uh, to that? Well, in, in many cases, it's about getting out of the way, right? So one of the few tech startups that uh, really has provided employment for less skilled Americans, as the work of Alan Kruger has shown, is actually uh, an entry point into employment for many people is Uber, right? So Uber is the, the rare tech startup that's actually really about providing jobs for ordinary Americans who you know, either want to work a few extra hours or you know, need, need to get started back in the labor force. And you know, the thing that we see throughout the world is, is incumbents pushing back, trying to regulate Uber, trying to stop it. And really, there needs to be a, an embrace of technologies like this, you know, of asking, why aren't there more Ubers for more, more different services other than just driving a car, rather than saying, boy, we, we've got to shut this thing down. The resistance to Uber has been, I think, similar to the resistance to Airbnb and other kinds of services where you have effectively dead capital that someone is trying to activate for a low cost, but the regulatory burdens that are put on 
businesses providing similar services uh, are there in part to protect those businesses, perhaps, but uh, certainly they we've they're thinking we're we've overcome these burdens. Why shouldn't we compel everyone else to uh, overcome these burdens as well? Well, it suggests there are two possible equilibria, one of which is that the burdens get imposed on everyone, so it's fair, or the other thing is we take these new entrants as an opportunity to rethink the existing burdens and lighten them. I mean, I, I had a, a driver in Chicago maybe two or three years ago who was complaining about Uber. And look, it was hard not hard to disagree with her sense of, of injustice of it. Here she is com- you know, complying with all of the rules, getting health insurance for everybody, doing all that she's supposed, which puts her at a tremendous cost disadvantage relative to her competitors in, in Uber. Um, I think the right answer for that is to, to rethink the rules that she's that she's facing, whatever rules have to be applied to everyone, but they certainly should be, I think, in many cases, lighter than they are than they are right now. Entrepreneurs and employees need each other, and housing plays a, an important role in either allowing them to get together or keeping them apart. So what is the role of housing in all of this? Well, it is amazing when you look at America how different GDP per capita is in different parts of the, of the country. Uh, and it is amazing how some areas are incredibly dynamic and some areas are just not so. The shame is that whereas the American history of cities is one in which cities grow up sometimes almost seemingly overnight around economic productivity. I mean, think about the incredible speed with which Chicago was built as, as the great Western metropolis in the late 19th century. Today, we've let the not-in-my-backyardists dominate, and we've moved increasingly to a world in which we've made it impossible to build in Silicon Valley, in San Francisco. And the result, again, is not just, you know, too few houses, but social injustice as well, and, and too much inequality as well, right? I mean, the right answer for Silicon Valley, for San Francisco, is that there should be a lot more people living and working there. It's a fabulously productive part of the American economy. And public policies that say no to new construction are saying no to workers who want to be part of this dynamic economy and saying, uh, you know what, you better stay in your you know, declining Rust Belt town. You're not allowed to come, come here. We're going to make it cost a million dollars for a starter home here. And there's nothing that's foreordained about that. There's no lack of land in greater San Francisco. You drive through it and there's plenty of space. No limitation on building up in the dense enclaves of, of you know, Oakland, Berkeley, San Francisco that's natural and simply government, government ordained. And consequently, over the past 40 years, these restrictions on housing supply have played an outsized role in which American metropolitan areas grow. So those that have the highest wages, New York, uh, San Francisco, LA, Boston, places that are very, very productive, they've really been limited by their construction uh, limits. By contrast, Atlanta, Dallas, Houston, and Phoenix each add a million people between 2000 and 2010, partially because their economies are, are fine, but to a large degree because they've taken a relatively laissez-faire approach towards housing. They've made it easy to mass produce housing for ordinary Americans. And on one level, in some sense, I'd rather see more of that growth occur in places where wages are higher. But on the other, you got to look at these places and say, God bless them, right? I mean, they're providing decent, good housing for ordinary Americans at a price of housing that no affordable housing advocate in California or Massachusetts can possibly dream of, right? And there's this tragic thing that we've now followed this followed this thing in which we now define affordable housing as this special small class that's made available to a few number of people if they're lucky enough to win the lottery and get them. Real affordable housing isn't that. It means that anyone can come to the metropolitan area and buy or rent a home cheaply. And in Houston, they do that by unleashing the, the private developers in 
San Francisco, they don't. And the consequence is that, that you're creating a boutique town that's affordable only to the wealthy. And, and that's really not the way that the economy is going to grow, and that's not the way that, that American problems with, with inequalities are going to be solved either. Our cities face our cities like Los Angeles. I would add Portland, Oregon to that <laughs> list. Uh, uh, San Francisco, the competition that they're facing from these other cities that are offering at least one component of uh, a vibrant business district, which is affordable housing, is the competition that they're facing. Are they going to butt up against some sort of uh, hard wall with those kinds of policies? Well, their, their, their businesses scream. I mean, I, I can remember 10 years ago being at a CEO summit in Massachusetts and, and hearing then-Governor Mitt Romney take, you know, listen to CEO after CEO complain that, you know, our biggest problem is housing costs, that we can't hire workers that we want to work. So they certainly don't certainly come up against it hard. Um, what happens is, though, that even when governors or mayors are convinced that, that this has to happen, and it doesn't usually take that much to convince them. I mean, the, the economics are so straightforward. You then have to fight on a neighborhood by neighborhood, block by block level, because each individual block just sees the inconvenience of a new housing project. And look, to every homeowner, affordable housing isn't something to be welcomed. It means a drop in the price of their most important asset. So uh, they're not sold on this at all, no matter how much the, the larger economy is sold. I think the places where you have the most hope of, of change are places where you have strong mayors who side of a relatively large areas, and consequently, they sort of see the need to inculcate economic strength by allowing development. The places that are the most difficult are places like fragmented Greater Boston, where you have all these small suburbs, including the place that I lay my head every night, uh, which are essentially homeowners enclaves, where they don't they don't care. They're not going to they're not going to budge on this. Um, their 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 goal is to stop is to stop construction, not to not to promote the growth of the region. That seems like a pretty intractable problem for. Uh huge cities in the United States? Uh, I, I, it's pretty hard. I think there are two ways to go around this. Um, and then I'll add sort of a third minor one. Um, the, the, the two ways that we know are one, uh, basic end runs around local permitting authority. So Massachusetts Chapter 40B is an example of this. And it basically means that if an area is, you know, uh, has very little affordable housing, and if it, you know, uh, is in noncompliance in a bunch of different ways, then essentially the state's rules take over instead of the local community's rules. So you can you can get take an end run on it. That's one way of moving with it. It tends to be one that's deeply unpopular at the local level, but one way is to just have the local rules superseded if, if you're you know, blocking too much. Um, the second way is with incentives. So Massachusetts has chapters 40R and 40S that impose uh, rewards for communities to actually build a little more. They're more sort of politically palatable, um, and you want to push on it. And then there are the things that go through laws. So remember how powerful Supreme Courts have been in this area, both for promoting housing in some cases, probably less often, but also for blocking housing. And they've done, they've done both. So the Mount Laurel decision, which is essentially became a price mechanism, pushing New Jersey towns to permit more, is one in which they pushed towards more construction. Uh, on the other hand, uh, the Friends of Mammoth case in California, where the California Supreme Court essentially, you know, imposed, and at least my reading of the case, is that there was an original environmental impact review requirement, which was on public projects, which they decided since every private project had uh, public approval, that implied to all private projects as well. So every, every project in California, public or private, needs to have an environmental impact review. And what's so burdensome about this and so such a mistake about this is not that the environment is a crazy thing to consider in all cases. It's that they're so one-sided and so localized, right? So if I just consider the local environment 
environment. I'm missing everything that's wider about it. I'm just considering what's happening on this beach or to this particular pond that's being impacted. But from a global environmental perspective, you know, building in California may be the best thing you could possibly do for reducing carbon emissions within the United States, right? I mean, this is an area that is naturally incredibly mild. My own work with Matthew Kahn finds that carbon emissions are much lower in these places. You'd think that every California environmentalist would be out there arguing for high-rise developments in Berkeley, right? That that's actually the best thing that could be done if you really were passionate about carbon emissions. And yet, the opposite is the case. And that's sort of the, the irony of that, you know, is, is, is obvious. What has been the impact on entrepreneurship and housing of immigration over the past, I don't know, 100 years or so? 100, 200 years. So um, the, the factual case that we can give clearly is that certainly immigration puts uh, pressure on housing prices in the short run. So this is the work of my former student, Albert Saez, uh, both on a national level and specifically looking at uh, Miami um, after the Mario boat lift. Um, he finds that, you know, at least in the short run, prices prices jump up for people who are competing with houses for, for immigrants. You know, I... I so sure, I don't think the right response to that is to have a knee-jerk opposition to immigration by any stretch of the imagination. I think the right response if is to- If you're a homeowner, you love uh, it. That's right. If you're a homeowner, you love it. And if you want affordability, you want to, we want to make sure there aren't barriers to building, to this being the best way to deal with this. Certainly in the long run, we don't think that this has damaged, you know, made Miami unaffordable at all. In fact, his own work shows that three or four years after we're done. On the entrepreneurship side, goodness, I would not want to imagine America's economic engine without, entrepreneur, without immigrants. If you just look at what the share of patents in the U.S. that are being done by people uh, people who are, are non-native, if you think about the outsized role of people like Sergey Brin in the growth of some of our, our hottest companies, um, you know, uh, America has, you know, from Andrew Carnegie on down or Alexander Hamilton on down, right? I mean, immigrants have played an extraordinary role in the dynamism of the American economy. So I would be, you know, I think it's very crucial that we have the, the right sensible immigration policies that attract the global talent that really we need to build the businesses for the future of this country. You say talent. Uh, does that are you implying only high skilled immigrants? Look, there, there are two different questions here. One of which is is I, I probably want more immigrants along every dimension. Uh, so you know my own my own views, which I'm sure will get a bunch of hatred on this. But my own views is I, I have trouble looking at myself in the mirror and thinking of all the advantages I get from being an American and thinking that I want to deny other people those advantages. I just I just can't. It's morally troubling to me. In terms of the pragmatic way forward, where there are you know large numbers of winners and very few losers. Increasing the number of H-1B visas seems like a no-brainer. Increasing more pro-skilled visas are, are a no-brainer. So yes, I'm, I'm in favor of all kinds of immigration. But if you told me the only way to get this thing through politically is we're going to particularly skew this towards high-skilled immigrants, I'll take that deal too. Ed Glazer is an economist at Harvard University. Subscribe to this podcast at iTunes, Google Play, and with Cato's iOS app. And follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast. <laughs>